when I started uh, reading John Lennox's books, uh, and half of my books are you know stolen from friends like John Lennox, uh, I thought it's just madness that we haven't had, had him at Socrates in the city. But he played hard to get because if you know John, he does that. And I had to go all the way to France with uh, my my wife, who hates French people, by the way. You just go talk to her. Just talk to her. She hates the French. I hate the Dutch. I'm sorry, Heidi. I apologize. Any, any Dutch people from Grand Rapids here? I, I hate you and your theology. Um, so I had to go uh, to France. And the fact of the matter is that we've never done this before. We did an outdoor Socrates in the city. Uh, and it was, uh, we only got about 20 people in the audience, you know, and... Uh, but I thought, it's about the filming. I want to film this. This is John Lennox. And it made me furious that we uh, didn't have him. And I wanted to interview him. So we did it. And we, we have no advertising budget. Ca- did I ask, are there any billionaires in the room? Anybody? <laughs> if, uh, remind me to ask that every 15 minutes. Um, but I said, we have no budget. But there's such a dramatic desire for this kind of information that the, the first video that I did, we did two hour-long videos with John Lennox. Um, and he's so wonderful, and the hunger for this kind of stuff is such that I checked today, it's had 87,000 views. You know, this is how many people are interested in high-level science? Um, but I, I say that because I just want to let you all know there's a hunger in America for truth. There's a hunger in America. People who aren't even aware of the hunger are nonetheless hungry. But they don't even, they have forgotten that maybe there is some food out there for them. Uh, and I'd like to think that what the Colson Center does, what John does every day, uh, and what I try to do is to, to try to, to, to feed that hunger. But you need distribution, right? And so that's why we film things, because you want to get this out there. So I want to ask you, please, uh, whenever this video comes out or any of the Socrates videos, send it to your friends because they don't even know it's possible that a genius like John Lennox uh, could be a Christian. It's not possible. Well, let me tell you, uh, it is possible. Uh, Some of you know John Lennox. In case you don't, uh, he is, uh, to keep it simple, a professor of mathematics at Oxford University. Uh, This is the real Oxford, not the Mississippi Oxford. And um, he studied at Cambridge... And that's the, the real Cambridge, not the Harvard Cambridge. Um, he is Irish, as you'll tell uh, from his uh, manner of speech, which is annoyingly charming. If he, if he didn't have the, the, the accent, I really don't know how he would come across. But it make, no matter what he says, even if he insults you viciously, you'll ha- you have to laugh because it's so wonderful. He is, um, let me say this, as far as I'm concerned, a treasure to the church. Uh, he has debated Richard Dawkins twice in public, and here's the weird thing. Uh, he was so good at both those debates that, in fact, he has defeated him three times. Do, do, the, do the math. Uh, he's also debated uh, Christopher Hitchens and defeated him 1.5 times. And um, anyway, he's a mathematician. I thought I'd throw in some low-level math, math jokes. Um, but John Lennox has a secret weapon. It's called the truth. When you actually, when you actually have the truth, uh, 
it, it does give you some advantage, you'd, you'd figure, right? So uh, his books speak for themselves. He's internationally renowned in all the right circles. But wouldn't it be wonderful if he were internationally renowned in all circles, period? Uh, I have to say that when I first uh, interviewed him, he, uh, I think he, he wasn't sure what he was in for. He just figures I'm, a, I'm an unserious jerk, joker who knows nothing about science. Uh, but I, uh, I quickly disabused him of that notion. I used words like molality. I think I, I referenced Avogadro's number. Uh, now, by the way, I know you think I don't know science. I, uh, Avogadro's number. A lot of people saying, oh, I don't know what that is. Let me tell you something. I, had Avog- I know Avogadro's number. Uh, I actually, well, I had Avogadro's number. I lost it, and now I can't call him. And you know what? Avogadro gets a bad rap, but, but we were friends. We still stay in touch on Facebook. And, um, and so my point is, uh, I, I'm smarter than you think, and, and I'd like to think that I'm up to a conversation with the great John Lennox. I assure you I'm not, but uh, as the case with John Stone Street, I'm going to rely on the Lord uh, to make it work. Uh, how about a warm Socrates in the city uh, round of applause for the truly great Dr. John Lennox. <laughs> I, my goodness. <laughs> I know. I, I can tell... Uh, I can tell by the look on your face you've really had enough of my joking already, Dr. Lennox. I apologize. I won't, it, I won't do it anymore. Um, anything you'd like to say before you storm off? I, I think you should keep doing it because it keeps some of us less comical individuals moderately sane. I think. If I understood that correctly, that was a compliment. <laughs> I thank you for that. I thank you for that. My current wife is in the front row, so don't say anything too nasty. And she said, don't say that current wife joke anymore. And I've already failed. I've already failed. She also told, told me not to joke that she knew before I met her she was 400 pounds. And I, uh, she told me not to tell that joke anymore. And I will not tell that joke tonight. John, uh, you let me call you John. You are Dr. Lennox. You should be Sir John as far as I'm concerned. But you've written so much on the subject of faith and science that in the time that we have, I would just like to wander around on this subject. Um, But the big question, or or the the question we'll throw out, it's a rhetorical question, um, is has science buried God? You have written... A, a tremendous amount of, of uh, really wonderful, readable books uh, on uh, issues touching that, that subject. So why don't we just start there. If somebody asks you that question bluntly, how do you answer? Well, I answer it equally bluntly. I say no. <laughs> it's going to be a tough interview. <laughs> Can you expand on that, sir? Yes. It, that was that it, was brilliant. Well, no, it's brilliant. It's, we didn't rehearse this. It's not. It's simply clear that logic is not your strong point. 
You see, you see what happens when you joke around? You, this kind of stuff happens. Um, but the point is that there's a myth in our culture, and it's a very dangerous myth. And the first part of it is to say that science is the only way to truth. And that has had immense effect, particularly on young people, but not only, because some very powerful voices of public intellectuals who are highly qualified scientists are urging for that position. And it's actually very easy to see that that position is logically incoherent. I love logic, as Eric has discovered. But you see, the statement, science is the only way to truth, is not a statement of science. It's a statement about science. So if it is true, it is false. Hang you need, on, to, you hang need on. to think that out at this time of night. Hang on. You, you know, you got to let that one sink in. A big part of doing my radio show is just hitting the pause button when somebody says something like that so that we can take it in. Uh, if it's true, it's false. In yeah, other, in other words, words... Yeah. Shall we sing? <laughs> in other words... In other words, if you take the view that science is the only way to truth, that statement cannot be true because it's not given to us by science. And I think it's important to grasp some of the simpler arguments in this area. The really great scientists have seen that science cannot possibly be the only way to truth, and I mean the natural sciences, for the simple reason, as Sir Peter Medawar put it, and he's a Nobel Prize winner, science cannot answer the simple questions of a child. Where do I come from? Why am I here? And where am I going? And he says, these are questions that can only be answered in terms of literature, theology, and philosophy. And think about it. If science were the only way to truth, you'd have to close half the faculties in all the universities in the world. You'd have no history. You'd have no economics. You'd have no linguistics. You'd have no languages. You'd have very little. No classics, no philosophy, no theology. So it is nonsense. But unfortunately, people like Richard Dawkins believed it. Hitchens believed it. And more important still, the late Stephen Hawking believed it. Now, you asked me the question, has science buried God? I say absolutely not. But I think, and you may want to quiz me deeper in this later, I think science can bury atheism. Now, that's a slightly different perspective. Because, you see, historically, and history is immensely important, where do we sit? We sit in a period where we've had the exponential growth of science since the 16th and 17th centuries. And we think of the pioneers, Galileo, Kepler, Newton, Clark Maxwell, Babbage, uh, Faraday, and so on. All of them believed in God. And you see, this is important because it's factual. And people who think about these things like to say, well, is there any connection between the science they did and their faith in God? The answer is, of course there is. Because Christianity, its view of the universe as created by an intelligence, is at the bedrock of the development of 
modern science. So far from science burying God, it was belief in God that was the motor that drove the rise of science. And that's an immensely important thing that people forget. I remember many years ago, I gave the first lecture in 75 years in Novosibirsk in Russia. And that was an amazing situation. They'd never allowed a lecture at the university before on Christian things, but because I was a mathematician, they thought I How wasn't dangerous. Up, right? Yes. Yeah. So I was talking about this, and I told the audience, big audience, packed full of people like tonight, five, six hundred of them, all scientists from a very famous university in Akademgododok in Good Siberia. Night. Sorry? Gesundheit. Wrong what language. Say, what did you say? The University of what? Akadim Gorodok, little academic city just outside Novosibirsk. And I told them this, and I saw people getting really angry in the front row, and I don't like angry people um, in my audiences, and I'm sure Eric doesn't either, but I stopped. And there was a fairly hefty-looking professor in the front row, and I said, excuse me, sir, I see you're angry. What's the matter? And he stood up and said, you have told us that Newton believed in God, Kepler believed in God, Galileo believed in God. Why were we never told? This is the first time in my life I've ever heard that. And I said, can't you guess why you were never told? <laughs> I mean, it was quite astonishing. And they were furious at ignorance of history. But there are many people in this country and in the UK who have no idea that science as culture owes a vast debt to the Christian faith for a very simple reason. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. They are an intelligent product. And because they're an intelligent product, people believe that science could be done because it would be thinking God's thoughts after him. So that's where I would begin. It's not where I'd end, but it's where I'd begin. Well, it's not where I would begin, but here we are. Well, tell John, me where you no, begin. I, I, of course, it's where I would begin if I were as bright as you. But let me, let me ask you, when you say that, I mean, most of us are generally familiar with this idea that somehow uh, today we live in a culture that would assume science has buried God and on and on and on. It's why most of the people here are more familiar with that by far than your, you know, uh, average person out there, because this is the Colson Center and the Wilberforce Weekend. But maybe the question I can ask you is, when did that idea creep uh, into the West? In other words, if, if Kepler and Galileo and Newton and on and on and on and on were all Christians, when did this idea creep into the West that somehow science and Christian faith were at odds? I wish I was a better historian, because that's a very complicated question, for the simple reason that these streams in culture, atheistic stream, the theistic stream, and if you want to add in the pantheistic stream, have been there for millennia. You go back to the ancient Greeks, from whom a great deal of wisdom comes to us, and you've had roughly the big division that exists in the Western Academy. You had those that felt the universe was, ru was ruled by an iron fate, 
the Stoics, that there were gods, they might be distant, but there was something behind the universe. There might be a divine logos. And then there were the Epicureans who believed in doctrines of chance. And that comes barreling up to us through history into the 21st century. Except, John, for many, many centuries, those ideas were really absent from the West. In yes. other words, they had been effectively abolished. By Christianity. By Christianity. So yes. when, uh, I mean, I don't want to dwell on this, but at some point they, uh, they found their way back. I guess, is it a combination of Enlightenment thinking and then Darwin? I mean, I'm just wondering. Well, certainly, I think probably uh, people analyze these things differently, but you take Newton. And Newton was a genius of the first order. And he laid out the universe beautifully in terms of mathematics and discovered that mathematics gave us a brilliant description of how things work. And it led to the idea that the universe was essentially a mechanical artifact. And then people began to think, well, you know, it seems to run very well on its own. And we are able to research it without referring to any concept of someone who set it going. So the idea of God setting it going started to recede into the past. So you ended up in the 18th century with a lot of deism. Uh, there is a God away out there, but he's not interested in the world. And then, of course, you got the Enlightenment. And the social situation in England uh, was such that when you got the time of Darwin and Huxley, uh, there was more to it than simply using science to bury God. Huxley, who's famous, he was furious at the existence of amateur scientists. Some of them were very brilliant, like Bishop Wilberforce, who challenged him. And his idea was to have the church scientific and to change churches into spaces where they'd worship Sophia, the goddess of wisdom. And that was helped on by the French Enlightenment because there they discovered that the best way to kill other people's ideas was to remove their heads. <laughs> and you had that move away which was compounded and you know more about this than I do. Yes. By... <laughs> I'll say one more thing. Was compounded by a professing Christian church that had no reality and was compromised morally. And that turned the tables very rapidly, I think. And then you had people saying, okay, God was okay for a while. Stephen Hawking took this view. But now we don't need God anymore. So the question I find myself addressing a lot these days is, why was Hawking wrong when he said we don't need God anymore? That's his famous book, The Grand Design. Well, that brings me to something that I wrote as a result of reading your books. Uh, and I did want to mention it because it's Please great do. to... Pardon me? Please do. Oh, thank you. It's pretty, pretty cheeky. Uh, that's, um, I have to say, seriously, after reading your books, you know, this, this, this passion I have for communicating things, I thought to myself, most of the Christians that I know, now there are much fewer of them in a room like this, but generally speaking, when I talk to, was that a joke? I didn't get that. 
uh, actually, I mean that, right? Because this is the Wilberforce weekend, and these are the kind of folks who tend to be interested in that stuff. But most people that I know who say they're Christians, I, I would say, have you ever heard of John Lennox? No. And I thought, wow, that is bad news. Because apart from his books and the books of one or two others, we don't have much out there. You really, how can you not be familiar with this? And so it was reading your books and the books of Hugh Ross and some others that led me, when I wrote my Miracles book, to say the greatest miracle, without a doubt, is the fine-tuned universe. But I got that from your books. And when, I, when the book was published, the publisher, of course, says, can you, you, know, can you write an op-ed, boil it down into an op-ed? So I wrote an op-ed with the title, uh, Is Science Leading Us to God? Because, and this is, I sense, where you were going, is, is the strange thing is that up until fairly recently, you could have made the case, and they did make the case, and it's still with us in the culture, that the more science we know, the less we need God, which is just what you have said. But in fact, in the last 50 or so years, the more science we know, particularly about the fine-tuned universe, the more horrified materialistic, atheistic scientists are, because the evidence seems overwhelmingly to point toward the thesis that there's a God. So when, when you said that about uh, whether we need God or not, what, what did you mean? Well, I, I think you've hit on two very important things there. It's always interesting to hear people bring the fine-tuning argument. I was challenged by one of Oxford's leading atheist philosophers. He said, I've got about 70 students, and we've got a special dinner next week, and I want you to come and allow them to grill you. And you can see I look like toast. But anyway, <laughs> he said, I hope you're going to use your best argument against atheism. Oh, I said. Do you think there is a best argument against atheism? He said, absolutely. And I hope you're going to use it. So naturally, I said, what is it? <laughs> he said, if ever I was going to become a Christian, the first thing I would go to are the remarkable evidences of fine-tuning in our universe that make it hospitable to carbon-based life. So I said, thank you, I'll do exactly that. <laughs> and, and I did. But coming to the other half of your question, which is the notion that as science increases, God decreases. And what you get there is technically called a God of the gaps, which is regarded rightly as being intellectually lazy. I can't explain it, therefore God did it. And that is a profound misunderstanding of the nature of explanation. And explaining explanation is a very important thing. And I've dedicated my last little book, Can Science Explain Everything? Explain to that. Because the mistake that's made, and Richard Dawkins pushed this, is that God and science compete as explanations. So you have to choose between them. And Hawking pushes that even further. And I could never understand that. Why do you offer people a choice? You either believe in God or science, but not both. And then it occurred to me that they're making two profound mistakes. 
The first one is that they've got the wrong concept of God. Now, that didn't strike me for many years. You see, when I was young, which is a very long time ago, and I used the word God in public in Ireland, everybody knew I was talking about the creator God of the Bible who sustains the universe, but not now. People like Stephen Hawking, when I use the word God, they think of something like a Greek deity or Zeus or something like this. And they automatically assume that you're thinking of a God of the gaps. I can't explain lightning, so I invent a God. When you do some atmospheric physics, that God disappears. And the most important thing to realize, that the God of the Bible is not a God of the gaps. I don't know whether you've ever noticed the first sentence in the Bible. In the beginning, God created the bits of the universe we don't yet understand. (laughs) No? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that, linguistically, is a merism. It means everything. The bits we do understand and the bits we don't understand. Now, come back to Newton. Why did he write in the preface to Principia Mathematica, the most famous book in the history of science? I hope this book persuades thinking people to believe in the deity. Because the more he understood of how it worked, the more he admired the genius of the God that did it that way. That's the way your mind works. If you studied engineering, you can understand a turbofan jet much better than I can. If you understand art, you can follow the details of a Rembrandt painting better than I can. The more you understand, the more you admire the genius. And that is just so important. So Newton's faith, and my faith indeed in God, increases because the heavens are constantly and increasingly in detail declaring his glory. That's actually the way it works. But then there's the other side, and that is this. The God explanation is not the same as the science explanation. Let me illustrate it very briefly, if I may. Why is the water boiling? Well, because heat energy from the gas burner is being conducted through the base of the kettle, agitating the molecules, and it's boiling. Okay? It's actually boiling because I'm desperate for a cup of tea. Now, you're laughing. Now, what does your laughter tell me? You see, it's a false apposition because both explanations are correct. Now, think about that. This is very simple. I find kids can understand it, but many professors cannot. And I'll explain that in a moment. You see, the scientific explanation is telling you how it works. But I have also given a personal explanation in terms of human volition. I want a cup of tea. Now think about it. Which is the more important of those two? Well, people have been enjoying tea for thousands of years before they knew about equations of heat. Isn't that so? Those explanations don't conflict. They don't compete. They complement. And I sometimes put it to people and say, look... God no more competes with real science as an explanation of the universe than Henry Ford competes with 
the basic laws of physics and the law of internal combustion as an explanation for the motor car. You need both. And that is such a simple idea. Whether you're a scientist or not, you can point out explanation comes at different levels. But some of these people will explicitly say the why question is not valid. I've heard Dawkins say that publicly. Well, we do ask it still. And it's a very important question. And I think if we begin to grasp that, it takes the heat out of a lot of things. Did you repeat that? Um, About the heat? You, no. You, you, um, you said a, a little bit ago that the question, has science buried God? No. But science may well bury atheism. Yes. Uh, I, I want to write a very popular level book about that in general, because just science, uh, from what I know, um, I mean, I'm convinced that if a fair-minded person reads those chapters just in my book, <laughs> Miracles, they've got to be convinced that the only rational explanation for anything is that there is a God. I'm, I'm convinced of it. We can't prove it. But when you say... Well, not in the mathematical sense you can't, but you can prove it in the ordinary sense of giving strong evidence for it. Okay, but what I meant was obviously not in the mathematical sense because you're the, you're the mathematician. So what I mean is that if you um, are serious about determining whether there is a God, if anything, it, it does seem to me that science can either take... The farthest science can take you is to... In the direction of atheism, is I don't know. In other words, sci pure science can only take you to agnosticism. It can never take you to to atheism. It's not possible. I think that's correct. The, the very interesting thing you you framed the question, and I ought to attempt to answer it. Why do I think that science can bury atheism? It's because science can be done. That may seem a very simple statement to you. But it is an amazing thing. How is it that a mathematician thinking in her head in here and comes up with equations and they appear to apply to the universe out there, how does that work? Now, Eugen Wigner won the Nobel Prize for Physics, and he talks about the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics. We don't deserve it. It's a miracle. Well, he's wrong. It's only unreasonable if you start by believing atheism. But if you start by believing that there's a rational intelligence behind the universe, then doing science is reasonable. What am I saying? I'm saying that the Christian has a rationale for doing science, which brings me back to the rise of science. But let me come now to the atheist position. And I am fortunate to have many atheist friends. And I raise these questions with them. And... Uh, they sometimes say to me, why are you not an atheist? And they expect me to say, because I'm a Christian. I sometimes do say that, because it's part of the reason. But if they're scientists, I say, because I'm a scientist. If you'll allow a mathematician to be a scientist. And they say, how is that possible? Well, tell me, I say, what do you do science with? And I point up here to make it fairly obvious. And most of them say, well, I do it with my... 
And they're about to say mind when they realize it's not politically correct to believe in the mind. There's only the brain. That is a common view. You are your brain. So I let that sit for a minute. I say, okay, you do science with your brain. Tell me about your brain with which you do science. What do you really believe about it? Give me a short history of the brain. Oh, they say that's relatively easy because the brain is the end product of a mindless, unguided process. And I look at them and I sometimes smile and I say, and you trust it. (laughs) Be honest with me. If you knew that the computer you use every day in your lab was the end product of a mindless, unguided process, would you trust it? And I always force an answer. And I've asked dozens of world-famous scientists, and every single one of them has said, no. I see you have a problem then. (laughs) Here, you're doing science, and I'm asking you for a rational justification of your faith. Now, this is hugely important, and you may want to unpack this. We've been miseducated by atheists to think there's science there and there's faith here. Now, faith is a dangerous word in that context because it has two meanings. One is the Christian faith, the Jewish faith, and so on. The other is your subjective faith. And so the impression the culture gets is science doesn't involve faith. Christianity does. That is very dangerously wrong. Science involves faith. Uh, Simply, you don't do science unless you believe it can be done. More precisely, you don't do it unless you believe the universe is at least in part rationally intelligible. You've got to believe that in order to do science. But now the deep and important question is, why do you believe that as an atheist? If the thing you're doing science with is something you wouldn't trust. In other words, what I'm suggesting to you is very simple. It's that atheism followed to its logical conclusion destroys rationality. And they look at me sometimes, and they say, where did you get that argument from? I said, you'll never guess. (laughs) Where did you get it from? I say, Charles Darwin, actually. What? Yes, I say, he wrote a letter once where he said, I'm troubled by the awful thought that the mind which I believe, or the brain, has come together by natural processes. What would there be in a monkey's mind if you can even talk about it? And Lewis saw this years ago brilliantly in his book on miracles. He said, no argument can be valid that undermines rationality. And if we believe that rationality is simply the end product of mindless, unguided natural processes, that is the end, not only of science, but of all meaning. That is what I mean when I say that atheism, in the end, unravels rationality. Now, we have watched it happen in our culture. Not yet in science, but we've seen it in morality. Because it's all ended up being relative and subjective, and it's simply anybody's opinion. Good and bad are disappearing. 
So I, I think there's a huge issue here. So I'm very happy to say to people, follow the argument. Now, there are two people worth reading on this. One is Alvin Plantinga, brilliant American philosopher and a Christian. But the other is Thomas Nagel, who lives in the same city as you do. Have you met him? I have not. I'd love to uh, yeah. interview him for Socrates in the city. And uh, if you have any uh, way to connect us, that would be well, appreciative. I would love to meet him because he has written a fascinating book called Mind and Cosmos. Now, that's innocuous, but it's a subtitle. It's a revolutionary. He's a hard atheist. He has in print. He does not want there to be a god. But he says there's a problem with the naturalistic philosophy because it seems that if you follow it down the road, it dissolves rationality, and that simply can't be true. And he's desperate to get a way out without introducing God. As Alvin Plantinga said once, he really ought to be a Christian if he follows his argument, but he hasn't got there yet. So I'm very interested in these cultural developments. When atheists are beginning to admit there's a huge problem. Now, it's even bigger than that because it has to do with the nature of information as being a non-material thing, but we might come on to that at some stage. Are you going to talk about the chicken on the menu? Oh, I can. Do you, you want can. me to well, tell? Well, when you, when you, what you just said made me think of that. It's like we're an old vaudeville team. He just, I, 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 well, let me, let me ask you. I want to give you some pushback. Yes, it's a very to, good example. Well, of course it is. It's your example, and I remembered it. But before you, before you get to that, because that's deep stuff, I want to just backtrack a little bit and ask you about the idea that when you say to somebody, uh, with what do you do science, and they point and they say, the brain. You say, tell me about the brain. How did, it, uh, how did the brain get there? Uh, random mutations over time, so on and so forth. Wouldn't I'm surprised that none of these people you've asked has said, because I believe in the survival of the fittest, I believe that, um, that my brain, though produced by random mutations, has, has selected for the best. And it's only rational to think that that brain, which is most rational, would be selected, so I, it would lean me in the direction of thinking, though I can't prove it, that I can trust random evolution to have produced a brain. Mm -hmm. The real problem there, I think, is one step back. If you, whatever evolution does or doesn't do, that's a subject in its own right, and it's more for the biologists than for the mathematicians. But the one very obvious thing that Richard Dawkins missed for years is that evolution, by definition, cannot explain life itself. For the simple reason that whatever evolution does or doesn't do, it requires life in existence before it can start. So it cannot. And this is so important because Dawkins' famous book, world-famous book, The Blind Watchmaker, have you heard of that book? In the middle of it, his main thesis is the blind, unguided mechanism of natural selection, which Darwin discovered, is the explanation for, I quote, the existence and the variation of all of life. It's only relatively recently, in the last few years, that he admitted that the first half of that statement is completely false. Prebiotic evolution, said the famous Theodosius Dobzhansky, a biologist, 
is a contradiction in terms. So you have to get life going. That, that's the problem. Well, this and is... if you want to follow that, one of the most interesting people on the planet discussing origin of life questions as a scientist is James Tour of Rice University. I just wrote the word abiogenesis on the page because this morning I was reading about James Tour uh, talking about that. And I was just going to say, no one ever talks ab about that. And I'm thrilled you brought it up because let's say we believe in evolution. I don't, but if you do, you believe in random... Uh, unguided evolution, blind Darwinism, you do have to ask the question. And you realize that people have kind of fudged it. In other words, they act as though the primordial soup's uh, creation of life is part of a continuum into evolution beyond uh, single cells and so on and so forth. But you, you have to say, wait a second, you've just said this, that, that effectively, wait a minute, there is no life. To go from no life to life without this idea uh, of the survival of the fittest, there's, no, there's nothing. Uh, James Tour is probably, correct me if I'm wrong, maybe the greatest nanochemist in the world. Oh, yes. Uh, well, uh, he's many a... Many people think he should have the Nobel Prize. He's an absolute genius. Yeah, well, and he... Uh, well worth watching. He, he is. I've, I've uh, not yet... I've interviewed him on my radio program, but not yet at Socrates in, in the City. But when he talks about the idea and he says, well, okay, I create, I create uh, molecules in the lab. I'm the world expert on creating molecules, and I can promise you, as the world expert on creating molecules, not life, but just molecules, that there's no way that they can create themselves. No. And, I, yeah, I'd like you to talk a little bit about that, because we hardly ever think about that. We're always arguing about evolution, but this yeah, is... Well, let's step back from it, because... Most of the biggest difficulties occur before evolution. Whatever it does, and it has at least five different meanings, they, whatever it does, it's the existence of life that is the big issue. And life is at least in part has got a very, very clear programmable dimension. The longest word we've ever discovered is the DNA molecule, 3.45 billion letters long in a four-letter chemical alphabet with all those letters in the right place unless there's some sort of genetic defect. It's a word. And you see, words, you look up at that screen there, you see words. The moment you see words, you know there's a lot of electronics represented up there and a lot of high-powered technology, but you can tell instantly that there's a mind behind what's up there, can't you? It's an instant intuition, upwards, not downwards, to mindless, unguided processes. And that's the point of my menu illustration. Shall I bring that in? I was just going to say you've practically already brought it in because it's the same idea. I was referring uh, uh, to it with Suzanne today that we've got to talk about the roast chicken on the menu. So now's the time. Well, very good. And this has happened several times in my college. We have nice dinners. And uh, this particular occasion, 
our seating plan is arranged, and there was a very famous biochemist, actually from Oxford, and he was sitting beside me. And he made the mistake of asking me what I did. And I said, I'm a pure mathematician. And his face grew very solemn, and he said, how dreadfully boring. <laughs> so I, not to be outdone, I said, well, yes, I understand my subject is not all that sociably acceptable. But I tried to make up for it by being interested in the really big questions. He said, what big questions? Well, I said, questions of where mathematics fits into science, where it fits into the big story. Is there a big story? Oh, he said, it's far worse than I thought. Listen, he said, I'm an atheist. I'm a reductionist. We've nothing to talk about, and we're going to have a really miserable evening. So I said, are we? I said, you just hit a spark with me. Reductionism is fascinating. I said, I know at least three kinds. What kind are you? Well, <laughs> I'm a kind Irishman. I had to help him a little bit. I said, you know, I'm a reductionist too. Most of us are in the sense that if we got a complex problem, we'll try and split it into simpler problems, solve those, and then get insight on the big problem. He says, I do that. Well, I said, we have something to talk about. But he said, you know I don't mean that. I said, I know exactly what you mean. You're an ontological reductionist, from the Greek word ontos, meaning being. Everything you can reduce to physics and chemistry. He said, exactly. So I said, why don't we do an experiment then? He said, what? At the dinner table? I said, sure, this is Oxford. <laughs> so I pick up the menu, I show it to him, and he reads roast chicken. He said, what's the problem? I said, none for me, but how did you work that out? Well, it says it. How do you know that? Well, I've learned that these marks, they represent letters of the English alphabet. And in that form and in that order, they have a meaning. Okay, I said, you're a reductionist. Yes, everything in terms of physics and chemistry. Yes, okay, explain to me the way those marks carry meaning in terms of the physics and chemistry of the paper and ink. Silence. And his wife, who was sitting beside him very nicely, said, get out of that if you can. <laughs> but, now this is the honest bit. He didn't try. He said, I can't. He said, you know, for 40 years I've gone into my lab here in Oxford believing that can be done. And he said, it can't, can it? I said, well, you're telling me? He said, of course it can. You can't do it without a mind. I said, no, you can't. I said, what do you study in your research? DNA, he said. I said, what about that? You've looked at four letters, R-O-A-S-T, five letters, and you've come to the conclusion there's a mind behind them on the menu. What about the 3.5 billion letters you study? Oh, he said, that's chance and necessity. I said, pardon? Chance of the laws of nature. He says, there's no alternative. I said, oh, of course there's an alternative. And it's the same one that you recognize by five letters. I said, you have a real problem. And our culture has a real problem because now we come to the deeper question, how do you define science? 
because for many people it's off limits to introduce a mind as a source for information. You see, this is the key thing that makes all the difference. For many years, unfortunately, misled by a certain physicist, many people have believed that information is a physical quantity. It isn't. It's an abstract quantity. And you see, for me, that's the end of materialism because no amount of material processes can generate abstract information like words. But the biblical revelation now comes in and turns it all upside down and says, in the beginning was the word. This is a word-based universe. And life, I believe, required God who created the whole thing to do something special. And you see, that is revolutionary today. It's ruled out in principle by many people, but they've no scientific reason for ruling it out. The evidence is so strong that people cannot see it. So that's a little bit moving in that direction. There's a lot more that one can say, but it seems to me that what the Bible is doing is putting its finger on something utterly profound. John, at the very beginning of his gospel, says, in the beginning was the word. That's an existence statement. The word already was. The word is eternal. All things, well, many versions, unfortunately, say were made by him. That's true, but that's not what it says. What it says is all things came to be through him. That is, the universe is word-based. Now, the current views of the astrophysicists are that the universe came from nothing. And it created itself. So now our culture is faced with a raw choice between God and nothing. I never thought we'd reach that. But nothing is a very interesting topic. And I'm tempted to say something about it, but since it's nothing, I won't. Uh, I, have a, I have a question for you, and it's funny, um, John. I'm only asking this because you're here, and I thought, what a great opportunity when we talk about uh, abiogenesis, we talk about there's this moment when stuff becomes what we call life. What would you say, what do you say if somebody asks you, okay, what is life? What is it that we have here and at what moment does it become this other thing here we call life? Does anyone know? No, nobody can answer that question. The, the basic questions like that are unanswerable they're unanswerable, certainly in scientific terms. That's where Tour does a work of genius on this. But even if you bring God into it, asking the question, what is life, in terms of what is the difference between a dead body lying there and the living person they were two minutes ago, these are hugely profound things. But I'm not embarrassed by them for the simple reason we don't know what energy is. We can use it, but we don't know what it is. We don't really know what gravity is. Does anyone claim to... I mean, it seems to me at some point where a lot of this is philosophy oh, it more is. than it is science. And are there any... Uh, is there anybody who claims, for example, to know what energy is? I mean, when I oh, first oh, heard... Some, 
Some, some people do. But when but I first heard you say, you, you were, uh, I guess it was in our conversation in, in France, you said, uh, we don't know what energy is. And you had asked some scientists, what is energy? And it's a fascinating thing to suddenly stop and to realize, my goodness, we don't even know what energy is. We talk about it. We put it in equations. And we don't even know what it is. But that's the interesting thing, you see. That brings me back to another very important aspect of the nature of explanation. The current culture says if you've got a scientific explanation, that's it. It's not it. You see, take gravity. We got a law of gravity. But even Newton realized when he discovered it that it didn't tell him what gravity is. So the law of gravity in physics doesn't tell you what gravity is. Nobody knows what it is. What it does give you is a brilliant mathematical way of calculating, say, the movement of two heavy bodies relative to one another in different orbits, but it doesn't tell you what gravity is. And here's the profound mistake, that even within science, scientific explanations are usually only the tip of the iceberg. And Newton very famously saw, he says, non-fingo hypothesi in his book. I do not make hypotheses. That is, I cannot tell you. I can't explain what gravity is. But I give you this wonderful mathematical equation. We need to be a lot more humble about what we know and what we do not know. It's wonderful researching these things. I would love to see a replay, and I hope I do one day, of the beginnings of the universe and of life and all this kind of thing. But what guides me in my thinking, and science cannot falsify it, it supports it, is that at certain discrete intervals through Earth's history, God did something special, and God said. That's the exact opposite of a mindless, unguided process. And it's not often said. That's the interesting thing. But it is said at the intersection of non-life and life and the intersection between animals and human beings. Almost as if the writer of Genesis anticipated a huge debate. So the idea of God speaking is such a powerful one. Because when physicists now start talking about information and that we need to treat it as a separate quantity, here's the Bible has been talking about it for millennia. It's put its finger on the key issue. And, you know, we need to spread these ideas out. That's why I'm so pleased to have the opportunity of chatting with Eric and with you about them. Well, John, let me ask you, uh, would you, you want to just continue this conversation or do you, do you Very want happy to open to, it yes. up to, to, Wh- to Whatever questions? you like. You're the boss. Ro- roast chicken. Um, let, let me ask you one, one question. Uh, what you just said about Newton discovering the law of gravity, and, uh, but then you're, you're telling me that 350 some years after Newton discovers the law of gravity, we still don't know what it is. 
No, not in any absolute sense. We talk about warps and space-time and all this kind of thing. But what is it exactly? And I'm not quoting myself as a humble pure mathematician. I'm quoting Richard Feynman, who is one of the brightest physicists in the world, uh, American Nobel Prize winner, an absolute genius at Caltech. When they say that kind of thing, and no one knows, well, don't let people kid you, he said. No one knows what energy is. These really bright people are humble. And I find that very impressive. There's a great deal of ignorance out there. But there's enough evidence to see which way things are pointing. And I like to go for the big issues. You see, we can talk about the results of science. We've done very little of that tonight, except for the fine-tuning. It's the nature and philosophy of science that I find very convincing when it comes to the God question. And what is so interesting, and it just picks up something you said a moment or two ago, nobody can get rid of the idea of creation. So you reject God, and you end up with a self-creating universe. And that's a contradiction in terms. And one of the things I've tried to do, and I've written a little book about it called God and Stephen Hawking, is to show how the attempt by these people to avoid God leads them to nonsense. Strictly speaking, nonsense. And you see, it's interesting. Newton discovered gravity, and for him, it was a reason to glorify God. Stephen Hawking studied gravity. And for him, it was his reason for rejecting God. And I compare those two in my book. How do you move, and it's partly your question, from Newton to Hawking? And the heart of Hawking's argument is this. Because there is a law of gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. And when I first read that, I thought, what? Because there is a law like gravity, that is because there is something, the universe will create itself from nothing. That is a flat contradiction. And the universe creating itself is sheer nonsense. I won't go into that. It ought to be obvious. And it bothers me when very high-powered intellectuals like Hawking, and he was a genius. I remember him at Cambridge. And brain power, light years ahead of me, but it was very interesting that Lord Rees, our astronomer royal, made this point. He said, I know Stephen well. He'd written quite a number of scientific papers with Stephen Hawking. And he says he knows little philosophy and no theology, and we shouldn't listen to a single thing he says on those topics. And that was a very brave thing to put into public space around the time of his death. But you see, ladies and gentlemen, here's a little principle that you might find useful. Not every statement by a scientist is a statement of science. But the trouble is, when a scientist of note says it, the authority of science gets conferred on that statement. So when Carl Sagan begins his famous television series, Cosmos, the universe is all that was is or ever shall be. That isn't a statement of science. It's a statement of his atheistic belief. And therefore, you've got to ask, what is your evidence for that? You see, ladies and gentlemen, it is a mistake to think that only Christians are people of faith. I was asked by the BBC some time ago, um, 
what did I think of faith schools? And I said, which kind? Do you mean the ordinary state secular kind that's pumping atheism into the minds of children and getting them to believe? And the man said, what did you say? I said, you heard me. <laughs> Every school in our country is a faith school. So which are you talking about? They do not realize that their belief system their atheism is a matter of belief. Shall I tell them a little story about that? Or is it too late? Oh, all right. <laughs> Who wants a story about that? I debated Peter Singer, who's a very famous American professor, but he's from Australia, in Melbourne on his home turf. It was absolutely packed, the town hall. And I often tell people, that my parents are believers and so on. And when he stood up to speak, he said, well, there goes, that's it. That's my chief objection to religion. Everybody believes, uh, remains in the faith with which they grow up. And I thought, this is going to be very interesting. So when I got the chance to speak, I said, Peter, I told them about my parents. What about yours? Were they atheists? Yes, he said, they were. Oh, I said, how interesting. Um, so you stayed in the faith that you grew up in. Oh, but he said, it isn't a faith. Oh, I said, Peter, I'm so sorry. I thought you believed it. You're, this, this kind of stuff is very unscientific, you realize. It is, but there was one of the world's top-rated philosophers who didn't realize his atheism was a belief system. And this is the trouble in our culture. The people that are trying to silence you are silencing you intolerantly because of what they believe. And Dawkins writes in a book, Atheists Have No Faith, and then writes 400 pages about what he believes. <laughs> and we need to see how ridiculous this is because it frightens me that people are buying into it. We are people who believe in Christ. And if people say, why do you do that? We need to have answers. And we have every right to expect atheists, agnostics, and everybody else to answer the question, why do you believe what you believe? Wow. Uh, huh. I hardly know where to go. This is, I, I want to, uh, I just feel I have to indulge myself. When you said earlier... Uh, this has nothing to do with anything except my curiosity. When you said earlier that we don't know what gravity is, in the 350 years since it was the theory was uh, discovered by Newton, has anyone put forward any reasonable ideas? In other words, the idea that this vast mass called the sun has an effect on the Earth and all these yes. other planets... I guess the question is, has anyone ever put forward an idea, and maybe I just don't know about this because I'm not a scientist, uh, of what it might be? Are there particles that somebody has postulated that... Carry that gravity and all this kind of thing. Yes, all kinds of things have been postulated. But that sounds very abstract, right? It is very abstract. And you see, I mentioned just briefly that people say it's a warp in space-time. But now you have a problem. What is time? <laughs> And you know what? Now that what you is mentioned time? it, what it's, is time? Uh, yes. What is time? 
Can we? What, what do you say about that? I mean, that's a great, another one of these great philosophical questions. But from know. a scientist's point I, of view, I what do you say? I don't know. We don't know. I don't know. And uh, you get intriguing insights in, in scripture that show us that it's very complicated. Before Abraham was, I am. Unpack that. You see, these questions, what is time, what is consciousness, and so on, we study them, and they're fascinating to work out whatever we can in terms of processes that we can observe. But where I feel the missing factor is, is expressed by the late Anthony Flew, who was a brilliant philosopher, an atheist for most of his life, and then he suddenly was told about DNA and its language and all this kind of thing. And he was brave enough as an elderly man to rec- put on the record that he'd come to see that this language structure could not possibly have arisen from material processes. And he was asked, Where did you, how did you get there? And he said, I follow the evidence where it leads. And that's all I plead for the public. I resolved as a younger person at Cambridge that I wanted to expose my faith in Christ and in God and open it up to questioning. Spent my entire life befriending people that have a different worldview. So to put into the public space, and that's why I so much admire your work and the work of the Colson Institute and the C.S. Lewis Institute, and so put into the public space so that people will see there's a credible alternative to what they're being taught. And we need to have a lot of courage to do that. Otherwise, we'll all be silenced. Uh, I could uh, go on asking questions forever. We, We don't have a lot of time. Here's what I'd like to do. John said he does not like questions sequentially. That sounds very confusing, you unless know, I explain it. Yeah, just and have maybe two or three, and we look at them. Um, but he, here's what I'd like to do. Uh, I know that there's a microphone someplace, but if you can't get to it, if you can shout your question, this is very important. We're going to take three questions. That's it. Uh, so they better be good. If you raise your hand and you blow it, a lot of people looking at you. <laughs> so... The question, uh, we may have to hand that microphone around. Uh, the, we may have to hand that around uh, to, to the guy in the front row there, since he's brave enough, to this guy. And then uh, we need a, a Latina female, just to keep it even, <laughs> if you don't mind. We want to have biodiversity in the group. So uh, what we're going to do now is we're going to ask, let me, let me set the rules here. I'm going to be strict about this. First of all, you must... You must, I will shut you off, you must please put your question in the form of a question. (laughs) Okay. And you must limit it to 100 syllables. Okay. And um, I say this because it's Dr. Lennox's preference that we take three brief questions, the kind that you could just write down in a sentence, and then he will respond to all three as he pleases in the remaining time. Yes, sir. We speak a lot about science. True. Next question. (laughs) What about mathematics? 
is there evidence within pure mathematics itself for God's hand in creation? Is there evidence within mathematics itself for God's hand? Very well done, sir. Would you carry that microphone to someone uh, who has an equally terse question? Uh, that gentleman right there in the middle row. Uh, we ready? So I just want to know, I think it's predictable to hear all kinds of questions wherever you go, but I'm just curious, I would like to know, what would you, if anything, say to the Lord when you meet him face to face? To the what? To the, to Lord, the Lord, Jesus Christ. To the Christian God, Jesus of Nazareth. <laughs> Thank you, Eric. And what would you would sign my book? Would you, you please sign my book? You say to the Lord, you're going to get thrown out, watch it. What would you say to the Lord uh, when, you, when you meet him? Okay, and then the third and final question. Uh, we need some kind of an ethnic female. Uh, it's not funny. To, are you ethnic? You sure? We also, if you don't mind, we need you to be diverse. Are you diverse? Do you think that our acceptance of abortion forces us to believe in nothing instead of God? Does abortion, does our acceptance of abortion, great force, question, does our acceptance of abortion force us to think, to believe in nothing, to believe in nothing rather than God? Okay, wow. All right, John, I have them written down if you don't, uh, and if you do, I still have them written down. Yes. Is there evidence within mathematics itself? Well, if you are talking about the results of mathematics, all of this kind of evidence is indirect. And the point I tried to make, so I'll make it again, is the very fact that there seems to be a correlation between mathematics and physics and what goes on in the universe out there, that the universe is mathematically describable, is perfectly consistent with the idea that there is a designing creator. Now, I say it's perfectly consistent with, it doesn't prove that that word flitted in and out of our conversation. Proof, in the rigorous sense, only occurs in pure mathematics. It doesn't occur in any other intellectual discipline, not even physics, chemistry, or anything else. What happens there is the kind of thing the lawyers talk about when they say, prove it beyond reasonable doubt. That is, there are pointers, there's evidence. That doesn't mean it's weak. I cannot prove mathematically that my wife, to whom I've been married for 50-odd years, loves me, but I'd risk my life on it. In other words, there's enough evidence to do that. And it's the same within the Christian faith. But it's the fact that mathematics works that I find is the most impressive thing. Like many of those pioneer people say, God has revealed to us how the universe works in the language of mathematics. And it's the most compressed language there is. And because language, for me, points inexorably to mind, then the most complex languages point to the most complex mind. That's how I'd answer your question. But it's not that you can come up with an algebraic equation, x plus y equals z, therefore God equals, exists. It's not like that at all. So the second thing, um, well, I'm going to take question three next. What does the acceptance of abortion say? Now, this is a hugely sensitive question for many people. 
But what it tells us is largely about worldview. I remember having a session with a famous Oxford uh, ethicist who was a student of Peter Singer. And Peter Singer, as you may know, argues in print that parents ought to have a license after birth to put to death children, especially disabled children. That is a logical outcome of his atheism. And when I debated him, I had some horrible letters in advance telling me to crucify him, to go for the jugular, and they were violent with awful language. They were probably uh, Reformed theology people. Well, they, they were... Christian people, sadly. And I wondered what to do because everybody in the audience knew about these utterly radical views on ethics. So I started, and you can see it on the web, I started by saying Peter Singer is famous for his views on ethics. But we're here to, tonight to debate the question of God. And I would just like to say I disagree wholeheartedly with some of his views on ethics. But what I observe is they flow from his atheistic worldview. Now, I remember speaking to a very brilliant person who's involved with in vitro fertilization. And we were talking about the status of the embryo. And in fact, just to let you know, I take these questions so seriously that I took time out five years ago to do a master's degree in bioethics because the ethical questions are very important indeed. And this person said to me, look, what's your problem? Early on in life, that's just undifferentiated cells and they start to differentiate, but it's just a blob, a complex of cells. I said, that's your philosophy coming through. Try and see it from my perspective. That is life. But what kind of life? It's not plant life. It's not fish life. It's not animal life. It's human life. And if you allow that life to develop without interfering you get a human being made in the image of God. And I just quietly said, tell me by what authority you can interfere with that. Now you see, it depends on your worldview and what the world is very slowly waking up to is that concepts of right and wrong are actually worldview determined to a very large extent. Richard Dawkins actually denies that they exist, which is very odd for a person who thinks that Christianity is evil. John, let me uh, jump in for a moment. Because isn't it true that unless you believe in the God of the Bible, in fact, they don't exist. They can't exist. They are utterly subjective. That's absolutely true. Dostoevsky, I'm very interested in Russian literature, and Dostoevsky once said, which means if God does not exist, everything is permissible. He didn't mean atheists can't behave. Of course they can. They're made in the image of God. But he meant there's no rational base for morality. 
if there isn't a God. Now, we haven't touched on this argument tonight, but for me, it's immensely powerful. There's the scientific kind of arguments, but there are also rational arguments that have to do with the origin of morality. Does morality simply come horizontally? And the answer is no. If you trace the origin of morality in scripture, you'll find God defined it at the beginning. And that is staggeringly important. Don't eat that tree. You can eat of everything else. But in the day you do, you'll surely die. And the mess our world is in is the result of that grasping at human autonomy that I have the right to define what is right and what is wrong. That is where it all started. And we need to see a very big picture here. Now, Tonight is not the place to go into all the moral dilemmas that people bring up on the quest of abortion. What I think is very important to begin with is to try to understand what the central issue is. And for me, the dignity that you have is conferred by the statement that you are made in the image of God. Have you ever thought what that means? The universe is glorious. I love watching Andromeda Galaxy through my telescope. But you know, I know it's there. It doesn't know I'm here. (laughs) It shows God's glory. It is not made in his image. You are. And that gives you an infinite dignity. And what the battle is about is about human dignity. And there are all kinds of very important arguments about personhood and all this kind of stuff. But basically, I go back again and again and again to the book of Genesis because it is so enormously important. Now, just a word on the third question. What will I say when eternity dawns? I've often thought of that question. And I think I shall be pretty speechless to start with. And I'll tell you what I might think. I've often thought this when my wife and I, and we hope we go together, and eternity breaks upon us. I might just say this. Do you know, dear, If I had known that it was going to be like this, I would have invested far more in it. Ladies and gentlemen, we are all on a big journey. How tragic it would be not to do what C.S. Lewis did and open that eternal world so that it's even more real in our expectation than this world, but to be forced by an unintelligent atheism to believe that we're in a closed universe of cause and effect and there's no nothing transcendent outside it. There is another world. I came down from heaven, said Jesus. And he's going to come back. And I think the other thing I'll do is fall flat at his feet and say thank you. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen.